The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. Yeah, the pot of thunder and rock and roll. This is your remedy for boredom. The People's Podcast has arrived. You know what's coming. Are you ready? Yes! We're working for the Wednesday. Having a party in the studio today. I am Chris Jericho. Thank you so much for joining me here on Talk is Jericho. This show is blowing up people. So many great uh, responses. So many great feedbacks. So many great feedbacks, eh? So much great feedback. Uh, uh, to all the guests that I've had. Very eclectic, varied lineup and roster. And that's the way it's going to stay. And I hope you've trusted me to this point to know if someone is on my show, you're going to like it. Or else, I know you're going to like today's guest. She was one of the most popular and, conversely, most hated divas in WWE history. One of the pioneers of the modern-day diva from the Attitude Era. And now she's going into the WWE Hall of Fame right before WrestleMania. Of course, I'm talking about Lita. Amy Dumas, as I know her, but you guys probably know her best as Lita. She's going into the WWE Hall of Fame along with Jake the Snake Roberts, Ultimate Warrior, Mr. T. I pity the fool who don't like Lita in the Hall of Fame. I pity the fool. I wear chains and an Iroquois. I wear chains and a Mohawk, sucker. Did you ever say sucker? That's funny. We used to call Mohawks Iroquois. Because I guess that's the name of the tribe that I used to have, the Mohawk hair, hairstyle, maybe. But I remember, oh, yeah, he's got an Iroquois haircut. I pity the fool who got Iroquois haircut. Paul Bear is going in. Uh, Carl, Carlos Colon. Lots of fine, fine people going into the WWE Hall of Fame. And Lita is leading the charge. Amazing, amazing conversation with her. So uh, she will be here in just a few moments. But I want to talk about the big mystery that's going on right now. Everybody is is buzzing over what happened. Where is Flight 370? 
the Malaysian Airlines airplane with 239 people on board that disappeared somewhere en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, China. Now, it's really kind of a polarizing situation. I mean, it just blows my mind that in this day and age, when I can put a low jack on my car and they can find it anywhere, that you cannot find a giant plane. And, of course, the theories are abounding. What's going on? Conspiracy theories and did it really just crash into the ocean and disappear? Or was it the Bermuda Triangle? Was it an alien some kind of a demonic force? Was it a terrorist attack? Nobody really knows for sure because they haven't been able to find it. And my thing was, if it crashed into the ocean, wouldn't you have some kind of a debris, like a wing or you know, an oil slick or some random flames and all these sort of things? And you would think that, but the one kind of uh, devil's advocate is it took them two years to, f- to find that Air France plane back in 2009, and it was at the bottom of the ocean. So chances are... Maybe something happened and it crashed into the ocean before they could alert, before they could let people know. But it just seems so fishy like that something like that could happen in this day and age. Now, I've been talking to my sources. i got a lot of sources in all different fields and very varied uh, areas of expertise. From terrorists, uh, news journalists, paranormal people. Conspiracy theorists, news guys, one of the most prominent anchormen in, in American journalism right now, good friend of mine. So I've kind of combi- compiled a lot of different theories and thoughts. And the one that really kind of stands out to me is that there's a theory going around that the pilot or pilots or someone else who knew a lot about 777s entered the cockpit, disabled the, the, the communication system and the transponder, turn the plane to a new course, and then intentionally depressurize the plane in order to kill everyone on board. Now, how'd you do that? Well, you disable the oxygen masks, or you let the masks fall, then climb to 45,000 feet and fly for eight-plus minutes. The masks only carry eight minutes of oxygen, enough for a distressed plane to fly below 10,000 feet for breathable air. So if they were able to do that and take it up to the higher altitude, disable the oxygen mass, after eight minutes, the passengers would simply fall asleep and die. Okay? And it makes sense to me that the passengers wouldn't have been around or something happened because if they were alive during the, the, the several hours of the hijacked trip, they would have been composing emails and texts on their phones, which would have then sent when the plane flew over land again. You know when you, you send an email and it doesn't go because you don't have reception, it just kind of stays in the inbox and goes out? Once, uh, once you get into a reception area. And texts can do that as well. And it explains why the cell phones still worked for days after the disappearance. Because people were calling the cell phones a couple days after this happened. And the phones were still ringing, but no one was answering. Now, that could also be explained as, you know, I read another theory that you could call a certain satellite system when, the plane, when phones are in the air. And the satellite system would not give you a busy signal, would just give you a ringing signal that doesn't go away. And I've had that happen before as well. So that that seems to be kind of the more logical explanation, but this whole thing is illogical. If I was Spock, this lack of logic makes it illogical, Jim. So if so let's say, okay, let's go back to the theory. So let's say that, the, that they dismantled the oxygen masks and sucked all the air out of the plane. So all the passengers have passed away. Now the pilot 
and whoever took control of the plane could fly to an unknown destination that he had in mind, and maybe you know maybe it's a terrorist landing strip somewhere with the intent to use the plane for some kind of future terrorist activity. Now, because the families were able to ring the cell phones of their loved ones for a few hours and a few days afterwards, it would seem to me that there's a chance that the plane could still be on the ground. Now, if that's one theory that's going around, I'm sure I'm not the only person that surmised this or put it together. So that means if the plane now enters anybody's radar in the next coming days or weeks, it's going to get shot down immediately. Okay? So it's pretty scary anyway you slice it. Now, I was mentioning that, you know, it would seem this whole thing seems preposterous but who would have ever guessed that 9-11 could have happened how preposterous that sounds in theory if i would have told you that beforehand but my other theory is if it was some kind of a terrorist attack why have they not taken responsibility for it yet because that's usually the number one you know um point of a terrorist attack is they would want to take credit and have people say this you know in in the name of jihad or whatever in the name of Ron L. Hubbard, I'm taking this plane hostage and I'm going to you know, use it against you at a later date. So we've, we've heard nothing from anybody. So to me, the easiest explanation is that it just crashed into the ocean and they can't find it. And apparently the Indian Ocean is very deep. But how quickly would it sink? Like, I don't know these things. I'm not a scientist. I'm a, I'm a podcast host, not a doctor. Damn it, Jim. But then I also heard on CNN one of the pundits, one of the talking heads, saying that it could be a Bermuda Triangle paranormal, uh, you know, uh, event. And the fact that somebody said that on the news just shows like how crazy the situation has gone. Now, if you are a stone-faced, true blue, I just believe what I believe, uh, what I can read, and what I know is true, then you're not going to believe the paranormal kind of uh, super, super, supernatural type of thing. But to me, why not? It's just as viable as anything else. If you, if if I'm gonna, if I was a betting man, I would say that they're probably gonna find it on the bottom of the ocean. But I'm not a betting man, so to me, all the balls are up in the air, all the plates are spinning, and we'll have to wait and see what happens. Hopefully, there's some kind of closure soon for all the victims' families, and hopefully, maybe there's some kind of a weird, you know, Jim Jones type of mass hypnosis going on. And everyone's still alive. We don't know. But what I do know is I want to hear your theories and thoughts on what happened to Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. So I'm going to post the number on the Twitter, and I want you to call me and tell me what you think happened to the, to the plane and all the people involved. Can you do that for me? Let's get into it. Let's get into a discussion, and we're going to get into a discussion with Amy Duma, Lita, one of uh, one of the pioneers of ladies wrestling, one of the pioneer divas, and she's going to be on this show. But first, the longest field goal ever attempted is seventy six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, on the line right now, going into the WWE Hall of Fame in just a few short weeks, Amy Dumas is here Better known as Lita, WWE Hall of Famer. What's going on, eh? 
Hey, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Great. Congratulations on the uh, WWE Hall of Fame. That's huge. I didn't know if they would, you know, reluctantly put me in or, or not. I've always felt like kind of like a, a black sheep there and, and didn't know if, if it would go through or not. Well, but you might have felt like the black sheep, but you definitely were one of the biggest and most popular and most hated divas in WWE history, if not the most. So you had to know at some point when they it seems like every year they want to induct one, you know, one, one, one female, one girl. So I think it was just a matter of time. I mean, you totally deserved to be in there. Thanks. It's it's actually it's been really cool because you know I think it's one of those when somebody tells you something, and you're like, what's the proper response when people go, your dog's cute compliment so you say thank you to a compliment but i'm also like i had nothing to do with making her cute so is that really the proper response to some <laughs> people are like congratulations for getting the hall of fame i'm kind of like thank you but then i'm also kind of like well i haven't done any, any the the work i already did is is in the past so like at this moment i didn't do any work to get to be chosen so thank right. you like a, almost like a weird response <laughs> well, because you've been you've been so detached from wrestling for the last probably five or six years or so. I mean, besides a few appearances here and there, where are you calling from right now? Are you in Are you in the states now? Or are you still in Nicaragua? I I am just back in. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm pretty reacclimated. As I I was the past two months. I was in Nicaragua, and I was down in Nicaragua when they they called me to and asked me if I would would be in the Hall of Fame, and then also when they announced it. So I think I was a, a little detached. I'm detached from wrestling in general, but then, I mean, if there's a way to be more detached, it's to go to a third-world country <laughs> and really not be paying attention to what's going on. How did you end up in Nicaragua, of all places? Well, I mean, it kind of almost has to do with when I, when I started wrestling and I was attached to the Lucha Libre culture, you know, off, offset of, of wrestling. Yeah. And then people ask me what my heritage is, and it's technically... Irish and French, but I say that I'm a Latin poser because that's the culture that I really attach to. And I <laughs> enjoyed my scavenger hunts down there in Mexico. Um, so when I was looking for a second, a place to have a second home, I wanted it to be on the beach and I wanted it to be Spanish speaking. Mm-hmm. And Mexico, they not only is it a little bit different now from when I first went down, as, as everything is 20 years later, right. but. Um, but they make it difficult for foreigners to own land, and they make it difficult for foreigners to own property in in Mexico because they want the nationalists. You know, they want their own people to be able to to get property there. Yeah, understandably so. But uh, Nicaragua kind of took the lead from Costa Rica in making it easier to to buy property down there. So I I bought a house or I bought a place and had it built, and have been having scavenger hunts down there for the past few years. It's weird though. You hear like Nicaragua, all you think of is like this war torn country with like bombs going off or machine guns getting fired. I'm sure that's not the case at all when you actually get into the the nice parts of of the country, though. Well, when I first was reading up, when it was a possibility in in my head that you know I may own property or that I may get a place in, in Nicaragua, I opened this you know like Let's Go Nicaragua book or you know some sort of right. you know Nicaraguan tourist book, and the very first line was. Nicaragua, at this point in time, Nicaragua is virtually landmine-free. I was like, way to sell that country. <laughs> Glad to know that it's virtually landmine-free. Yeah, uh, mo- most of the landmines are gone, so we've got that going for us. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, that, you know, and it's, 
it's very wild west down there still, and that's what I love about it. Mm-hmm. But you know, the last really political strife they had was in the eighties, which at this point, you know, we think of eighties music is still played today. There's eighties resurgence in, in pop culture and, and everything, and a lot of us were alive during the eighties. So because you're alive when a a war was taking place or when political turmoil was happening, that's what sticks in your mind. I mean, just as I remember, like, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and that would be, like, in in my recent history, but it's yeah. actually been quite a long time at this point. So they, they've been really stable for a really long time, and the place is in pretty good shape, especially compared to what it was, like, during Sandinista Revolution, Iran contraband scandal, and, mm-hmm. and times like that. Well, I mean, yeah, you've always had a real, a real uh, affiliation with, you know, like you said, with the Spanish-speaking countries, with, 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 you know, kind of South America and that sort of thing. Because you actually started wrestling in Mexico, right? That's it was like your first place you ever went to when you got interested in getting into the business. Yes, and I can credit the lack of internet for that personal field trip because I was like. Well, the, the guys that I like, and I, what I see them doing, they're from Mexico. So I guess I should go down there to figure out how to do the stuff that they're doing. Which, I mean, I think it, it, was, a, it was an absolutely great chapter in my life. However, it would have been infinitely easier if I could have just typed in Lucha Libre wrestlers and you know, everything I ever wanted to know about them and, and where they train and where I could train came up on a yeah. Google well, things were different back then. So, so, so you're telling me that you were a fan of Lucha Libre. So you you just packed up and, and flew to Mexico. Like, how did you know where to go? I didn't, but I, I did have a Let's Go Mexico book, <laughs> and I bought. Uh, I reserved a room for three days because I thought I could do better. I was like, well, this is this place is ten dollars a night. And it says it's in a safe area of town, but I think I could do better than 10 bucks a night. So I'm going to book it, you know, I'm going to call them and I'm going to book it for three days. But I think in three days I can find somewhere for like seven bucks a night. So, <laughs> so, what, what, that, so that was as far as, as my planning went. So what did you do? Like, tell, you just showed up on the, like, did you go to Arena Mexico or, or where did you go? I went to Arena Mexico. And just, <laughs> just showed up in the office and said, hey guys, I'm here, what do I do? It was it was kind of like that. I I showed up and it took a bit of doing. And then by the time I, I made it, there you know there wasn't wrestling there that night. And then I went to the Coliseo, which would be like the B arena. Yeah. Um, and which is in not you know as as favorable part of town as as Arena Max is. And from there, just started going to. I just went to the matches, and they had there were four matches a week. Mm-hmm. The big ones were at Arena Max on Saturday nights, and then there was three smaller ones a week right. at Coliseo. And, you know, I didn't necessarily get leads to, to become where, where I went in the WWE, but it was the start of of my journey was, was down there. I feel really attached to that place. And, and the last foreign tour that we did before I retired in the WWE was we went to, got to go back to Mexico City and I put a mask on and I went and sat in the audience at Coliseo and watched <laughs> a match and, and that was really special to me. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, to go back kind of where you started, right? <laughs> did you actually yeah. work any matches in Mexico? Did you train there or were you just kind of soaking in the, the vibe and the culture? I did not have a match there. I was involved in two wrestling-related things. I trained down there at 
in the school that they have in the um, Arena Max at it's through CMLL. Wow. And I trained there, and then I got to accompany Los Barriquas to the ring, which was uh, Dave Sierra, or uh, a Cuban assassin is what he was working under there, Ricky Santana, uh, Miguel Perez, and Kevin Quinn. So mm-hmm. they were the Los Barriquas. I'm sure there's several Los Barriquas <laughs> with different <laughs> groupings, but that was the Los Barriquas that uh, when I was down there, and I got to accompany them to the ring at a big match at um, Arena Max. And then I also got to be involved in a pre-tape where I got to be a scared girl when there was a mask versus mask match versus Rayo de Jalisco Jr. versus El Steel, who was Valvinas. And Valvinas had gotten hired to work at the WWF at the time. And then he, so he had to lose his mask and then, you know, start his next chapter in the WWE. And so I got to sit in on their pre-tape and we were hanging out watching TV and Rayo de Jalisco busts in and says he's going to, you know, beat him <laughs> up, and we jump. My, me and some other Mexican woman just jumped up and screamed and got out of there. But those those were my big roles down there in Mexico. <laughs> so you can uh, keep your eyes out on YouTube, uh, Lita fans. You might get a chance to see that. And it's funny. I remember that um, that training center. It was kind of upstairs in Arena Mexico, and it was kind of a, a dingy type of a place with kind of like a like an old boxing ring almost or something like that. At least it was back when I was there, like in 93, 94. Not exactly the most glamorous of places to be training. Oh my gosh, it wasn't glamorous, but it was so romantic to me. Like, I wouldn't have wanted it any shinier or any, any, you know, any cleaner than it was. It was two, when I was there, which is probably similar, it was two uh, wrestling mats stacked up on top of each other with garden hoses. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Ropes, yeah. Yeah, garden hoses for ropes. uh, that's, That's a Mexican standard. Um, okay, so so you go there, and then what made uh, so you, you go back to the states with a little bit of experience, and, and then what was your goal? Did you want to try and train with somebody else, or did, were you ready to work at that point? No, I was definitely not ready to work. I was just on my way. You know, I, the whole the whole point from flying down to Mexico to getting to the WWE was, you know, I just want to collect bits and pieces of knowledge and skills and information to be able to, you know, go all the way. Mm-hmm. And and so from there, I did make some connections, and then, you know, there's people telling me, you know, there's places you can train that are a lot closer than here to your house. <laughs> no, I didn't. That's why I'm here. <laughs> so, you know, and from there, I started working on the independence, and, and every every time I would work a show, I would just say, you know, anybody that was just chit-chatting with me, I'd say, where are you working next? Do you think I could get on that show? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... You know, if I could, we'd, you know, I traveled a lot, especially early on with Joey Matthews and Christian York, and we'd say, bell to bell, if we can make it from one bell to the, you know, the end bell of the one match, the beginning bell of the next match, we'll drive there. And, you know, we weren't making any money. We weren't covering really even our gas money or anything. Yeah. But my thing was, if I could pick up a piece of information that was going to help me, I could learn something that was going to help me. If somebody could give me advice, if somebody saw something in me, I mean, you just never know. You know, right. you got to let life happen, but it's not going to happen sitting on your couch. So i got to be somewhere other than my couch to, to progress the stream. It's amazing that even though that was only, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, how much the business has changed. It was still a, a, a very, I'm not going to say it was a s- secret, but hard, hard to crack yet, hard to get in. Whereas now, you know what you have to do. You go to Orlando and you figure out a way to get signed by the WWE and start on NXT. But back then, you still had to kind of like, how do you get into this and, and just and just explore and have adventures on how to get in? It's amazing how quickly it's changed. 
Oh, for sure. I mean, people ask, do you have any advice on how to get in the business? How did you get in? I'm like, I don't advise you get in like I did, you know, but <laughs> I, I'm glad that I did the way that I, that way that I did, but that just wouldn't happen. Well, yeah. Way. I mean, you were almost, I'd say, like one of the last that got in kind of that old school way, because basically when you came into the WWE, it was, there was a few girls that were kind of like you, and then there was other girls that came in just as fitness models or bikini models or whatever it was. So you're kind of almost the last last of your of your kind. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, also, I don't remember how far after, but, you know, then there became Tough Enough, and then there became the Internet. You could search right. things out, and, and there was, like, peeking behind the curtains with some, some documentaries that had never been out before. So, yeah, I was the last of, of calling a travel agent and telling them I was that right there I called the travel agent. And then <laughs> yeah, even that, right? I told them I wanted to go to Mexico. And they are like, okay, where in Mexico? And I was like, well, the thing is, I'm going to be a Lucha Libre star, so <laughs> I just want to go where they have Lucha Libre. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah. Lucha and, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's like, Mexico City, Acapulco, Cancun. She's like, I sell travel vacation. You know what I mean? I was like, what's the first city you said? And she's like, Mexico City. I was like, that one's probably the biggest, right? <laughs> she's like, yeah, so just pick, I'll pick that one. Just throwing a dart at a map of Mexico and just showing up wherever you could. Looking for guys in masks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So how did you, uh, what did you think of your time in ECW? I know that you were there for a short time. It was basically towards kind of almost the end of the glory years of, of ECW. Um, did Paul call you up or did you just show up there too like you were everywhere else? I just showed up. <laughs> yet, yet again, um, I heard from somebody that they had ring like workouts before the shows. Yeah. And so I asked, Somebody who asked somebody, do you think it would be okay if I could just show up for the ring workout? I'd just like to see them work out. Uh, I just, you know, again, any piece of knowledge I could get, anything I could watch somebody do that might make me a better wrestler, anything, any advice anybody could give me, like, mm-hmm. uh, like I definitely saw the value in that, you know, and that's what I was going after. And when I was in Mexico at the time, Tajiri and Ultimo Dragon were to they're in the second match every night. Mm-hmm. So I I knew of Tajiri, you know, and yeah. and then so at the time working was super crazy at the Fastel Norte and Tajiri. And they were kind of all hanging out together and just kind of doing moves. And so I went over to Tajiri and, and I asked you know, he didn't he, his Spanish is better than his English. So yeah. we were speaking Spanish and I told him that you know, that I saw him down in, in Arena Mex a lot and, or in Coliseo. And, you know, we were just kind of talking. And then, I, so they were, they were doing spring ball, springboard moonsaults to the, you know, into the ring. And so then I was doing them and we were doing moves. And then, and I kind of was just having fun with them playing, you know, Latin poser that I <laughs> love to be <laughs> speaking Spanish and doing like lucha moves with them. And then Dreamer calls me over. And he's like, hey. And I was like, I'm in trouble. Like, what a jerk. Like, I'm just monopolizing this corner of the ring. We're just right. like, laughing and doing these moves and, and whatever. And I'm using my Mexican slang, and the, the Mexican wrestlers are loving it. You know, and I was like, right. man, this is great. And he was like, can you come here? And I was like, I'm so sorry. He's like, put your gear on and do a five-minute match with this other girl who, who I came with, another indie wrestler. And I was like, oh, Okay. So I, I did a little five-minute match, and then they asked me to, to come on the road with them. And that was as Miss Congeniality. What was the uh, concept of the character of Miss Congeniality? 
here's the thing. I don't know. <laughs> I never really got it. Uh, I think the, and it, for a long time, I just didn't have a name. Uh, mm-hmm. I wrestled my very first match in the United, or my very first appearance in the United States was with Christopher Daniels, the fallen angel. Mm-hmm. So because I valeted him, I was Angelica, just because you see how that works there. Yeah, and right. Then, so I was just Angelica, but they're like, well, that doesn't really mean anything. We'll probably change your name. Like, so people technically called me that for like a bit just because it was my wrestling name. Right. But then as you stayed after till 4 a.m. to shoot your promos, as you did there mm-hmm. in ECW, yes. um, Paul was like, okay, so you're miscon-, you know, and he's always just like fired up and everybody's like half asleep and he like comes in and like, you know, now it's your time. You get to spend time with Paul and he's going to tell you what to do and you're going to, you know, the secrets of the earth are going to be unlocked right now, <laughs> you know? Right. They're like, okay, what? Okay, what do you need me to do? And he's like, all right. And, you know, and so this is coming from a, a New York male, you know, and I'm like, but I'm a girl from the South. Uh-huh. So he's like, okay, you're smacking your gum and you're rude and you're like this know-it-all, miscongeniality kind of bratty, like, look at, check me out. And I'm like, whoa, that's like so, I'm not, that's, that's so the opposite of me, but let me try to embrace what you're saying. But uh-huh. You know, in order to even try to, to do a decent job at what's, what's somebody else's vision, you have to at least understand the vision. And I think that's where there was a disconnect. So I was like, I don't even quite understand what I'm supposed to be going for. So I'm certainly going to miss the mark if I don't even know what I'm trying to. Yeah. It's hard to play a character when you don't know exactly, like you said, what it is. Right. But yeah, you were there for, for a short time, but it wasn't long before you got into the WWE, it seems, because I remember you came in, I think it was early... Probably early two thousand. I think you were in ECW like in ninety nine. So it wasn't very long of a of a time before you got the the call to the big leagues. Yeah, no, not at all. And, and the thing that I was there is, while I respected every minute that I was there and every lesson that I learned and, and knowledge and everything, you know, they were they were the distant three in the big three at right. the time. Yeah, and while they were doing really cool stuff and really groundbreaking stuff. I wanted to be at the, the number one of the big three, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I just still kept my eyes and ears open and tried to soak in as much as I can while um, trying to keep going forward. And, and so that was always your goal was to go to the WWE? Yeah, I mean, and there might have been a time earlier in my career, like earlier in my vision that it might have been to go to WCW because mm-hmm. that's where they were focusing more on the Lucha Libre. Right. But then when I just saw more opportunity in the WWE and they were kind of, they had pulled ahead, number one. So yeah. I wanted to at number one. And it was more of just like an anything goes there at WWE at the time. I just saw opportunity to be able to kick down maybe a few more doors as a as far as roles being a little more traditional and established in what they were doing in WCW. It's funny, though, because you mentioned that you were, I mean, a Latina poser, a Latin poser, and you had such an uh, like, appreciation and respect for Lucha Libre and trained in Mexico. And then when you come into the WWE, you're kind of like the valet for S.A. Rios, a, a completely Mexican wrestler. Was that something that you, I mean, how did how did that ever come to be? Was that something that you wanted to do or was it pitched to you? Man, like, I could not believe when they said they were going to put me with, with him because S.A. Rios at the time was my, one of my absolute, besides like Negro Casas and, El, uh, and Cento Jr., you know, yeah, like, Hijo del Santo or whatever, or like, you know, like Blue Demon, Hijo del Santo, Negro Casas, like you can't go wrong. Like, right. You know, but they're, they're the top 
Lucha Libre stars down there, had been for forever. But Mr. Aguila, which is who Papi Chulo or S.A. Rios was wrestling at, at the time, at the time when I was in Mexico, was my absolute favorite wrestler. Wow. Um, and they were, you know, they're like, okay, we'll throw some ideas together and then we'll throw ideas together and kind of spitball around. And my ideas were like just kind of going with what's going on the show at the time. I'm like, okay, so I'm in one of Val Venus's porn videos that he's in. <laughs> okay, I'm uh, pulling a foot of somebody's, you know what I mean? Right. So it was like, that's kind of what's happening. And they're like, all right, um, well, how about this? You go out with him, and you guys are kind of a, this duo. We don't know whether you're brother and sister or girlfriend or boyfriend or, or just your partners in crime or whether you're Mexican or whether you're not. And you go and you, you copy, you're a mimicker, and you mimic his moves, and mm. you guys go out together. And I'm like, like I, like, I would have been too scared to, to pitch that because that, that's, like, the best possible case scenario for you, right. How did you feel about, about S.A. Rios when, when he came in? I thought that, uh, I thought it was, he was good, but the, the problem was he didn't speak English, I remember. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a huge problem. And so think of, of my role, uh, having some amount of, of bilingualness going on. I'm brand new, I'm a woman, and I'm telling Bob Holly. What, what Papi Chula wants to do. <laughs> yeah, not exactly the best scenario. I'm sure Bob was uh, quite happy about that. <laughs> no. So there's the language barrier, there's the cultural barrier, then there's like the new girl that's like, um, yeah, he doesn't, you know, I was very protective over Poppy, you know, just as my partner to work with and mm-hmm. feeling bad that he had a language barrier, respecting him and him inspiring me from, from before we were ever together. And, you know, our ship doesn't sail unless both of us are, are doing well, you know? So I, I'm, and I'm taking up for him and I, and I'm saying, and I'm calling spots out there because I know what he, what he wants. And I under, I'm understanding how it's not being conveyed. Yeah. And they're like, and then this girl's yelling, Shit at me. you know what I mean? It's just like, what a, what a tough spot to be in. But it was one of those, Oh, well, I'd rather go down fighting if this isn't going to work because, I believe in it. Yeah, especially at those times. I mean, the early 2000s, it was a real, uh, it was the Wild West in the WWE. It's not like it is now where everybody is politically correct and nobody wants to step anybody's toes. Back then, it was like backstabbing and like so crazy, every man for himself. So, I mean, I can just see how that would be causing issues for you, you know, just for those reasons, you know? Nobody was being nice to anybody if they didn't have to be. Yeah, how I did not end up in wrestler's court over calling spots over some veterans. <laughs> Beyond me. I remember how you guys broke up, too. It's like something like like Poppy Chulo was talking to the Godfather's hose, and then you saw him, and then you got in an argument, and then he like powerbombed you. The end. <laughs> or something. Oh, yeah. As right? Do. Yeah. Yeah. Some- yeah. Um, and, and another full circle thing there was my first appearance in WWE was as a Godfather's hoe. And so they brought that back around, and yeah, I mean, guess one power bomb, and 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 that's it. Move on. That's it. Did they have? Did uh, they? I guess Vance or the, or the writers or whatever. Did they have plans for you to already join up with with the Hardys at that point, or were you thinking that maybe it was going to be the end of the line for you? No, no, they knew they wanted to put me with the Hardys, and they said, you know, guy, we see you guys in catering, just talking together. We see you guys walking around the building. Like, you just, you're friends, and, and we just like that. It just looks good. And, you know, your styles would go well together, and, like, we just want this this gang. And so they knew they wanted to get there. They just weren't sure how or when or if they wanted to make it with a moment or, a, you know, to coincide with a pay-per-view or storyline or mm-hmm. something like that. 
But that was huge. I mean, if you're thinking, once again, the early 2000s of the, you know, quote-unquote attitude era, you know, the Hardy Boys and Lita Team Extreme was one of the one of the big attractions of the WWE at that time. I mean, you guys you guys got over huge. Man, there's just that that time was just so so special where everyone potentially could have been in the main event at any time because everybody there were had a ravenous following, you yeah. know, and, and you were just as excited as to see who was going to steal the hardcore title from Crash Holly, the twenty four seven, as you were the tag team match, as you were the main event. Right. Yeah. Every everybody had a gimmick, and everybody had a viable storyline from the first match to the last match, and and that's something that definitely has been lost over the last few years. Yeah, for sure. There's just a bunch of young kids trying to make it in this world now. <laughs> The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. I got Lita on the line, Amy Dumas. Do you do you, people still call you Lita, or are you just Amy at this point? I have them trained pretty well, but I definitely I'll get Lita, you know, every now and again, and, and still even on on the streets. But uh, I'm I'm kind of phase phase that out. Was that um uh, like how did they drop that name on you? Did they give you a list of names to choose from, or did you just show up and they said, okay, you're Lita now? Man, you are you are like just hitting on all of the, the good stories. <laughs> we we debuted on Heat, uh-huh. and Gilbert had had the light heavyweight title for forever as as a joke to to parody Goldberg, the you know big star at right. WCW at the time. So they wanted to establish you know get credibility back in this light heavyweight title as opposed to a prop for Gilbert. You know that gimmick had kind of run its course, and they wanted to spike up the the light heavyweight division. Yeah. Uh, Cruiserweights were really, you know, making a name for themselves over in WCW at the time. They wanted to get popularity, same thing, over WWE. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to have Gilbert lose the title, and they were going to do it to Christian. Right. And But Christian was still, I believe, in the brood, and they had stuff going on, and they're like, ah, it might kind of be a conflict of interest. You know, he had something else going on, so that didn't end up working out. So at 4 o'clock, we were in Texas, so it was... um, four hours so live, mm-hmm. they said, you know, hey, you kids are starting tonight. Uh, we don't know what your names are, what you're going to do. We don't really know much about you other than you're going to go out there, beat Gilbert, he's going to finish with a moonsault, and you're going you're <laughs> gonna to hit it after him. And I was like, all right. Hey, seamstresses, how fast can you guys make us matching outfits <laughs> to, do our, to do our thing? And so we went out there, did the match, and uh, didn't and so that was and you still didn't Monday. have you still didn't have a name. No, okay. Filmed on Monday was going to air on Sunday, and they mm. said, "Well, we'll just figure it out sometime between now and whenever we do the commentating." <laughs> and that we'll figure it out. I was like, "Well, okay, you know, I'm in no position to say like, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to need to know a couple things before yeah. we head out there." I was like, "Our yeah, you do what you're going to do, and I'm going to go out there and do what I want to do." Mm-hmm. So, 
uh, we did it. And then somebody told me, I think, on maybe Friday or Saturday, and it was, it was one of the boys, but I don't remember who. They're like, I think your name's Lita. I, I heard that or I read that somewhere. Um, and I've always been one. I just kind of make it a, a life. I just stay off the dirt sheets for the most part. So yeah. I, I got, like, I hadn't read anything, and I was like, um, that's, I don't like that name. I really don't. And I was like, cer- certainly that's not it, and I don't know where you got your information from. But so, and some, how do you have this information if someone hasn't called me? So you're probably inaccurate. And then I turn on heat and watch it, and they're like, it's Essie Rios and Lita. Like, <laughs> that's how you found out from watching the show on TV? From watching Sunday Night Heat, our, my, our debut performance, we found out our names. Isn't it so funny how, I mean, people just don't know how crazy the WWE is sometimes. Like, they, people, fans probably think, like, oh, you knew for, for weeks and you had it all. There was, like, some kind of a scientific uh, theorem that went into the, the decision of Lita being your name. And, and you didn't even know about it until you'd already worked and you're watching it back on TV. Right, and they uh, they had a, like, they, they were like, well, we want you to be basically me and my ambiguous heritage they're like we want you to maybe be latin but you're not sure we're not sure if you are or not so that way uh if we break you off from him you're not like a luchador per se you know you're not like this masked mexican wrestler you're just like this chick that maybe has worn black lip liner in the past we don't know we're not sure yet so we're going back to when you were with Team Extreme, and I mean, you had a little bit of an image makeover, and I still remember like the look that you had was 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 perfect. It was it was like such a you just looked cool. You looked like a cool chick, you know. You had the 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 baggy pants, but you had the thong for the sex appeal, where everybody could see that. I mean, the whole the whole look of the of Team Extreme. I mean, that was just you guys, and it really became, I mean, you'd see fans in the crowd wearing the same clothes as you guys and the, the fishnet shirts and all that sort of thing. I mean, did you think that when you just put this look together that it was going to you know, get to be almost iconic at that point in time? For sure not, because to be honest, I remember telling my, you know, what I thought I would wear to, to Michael Hayes, and he was just like, no, nah, that ain't going to work. And I was like, and what I was thinking was on a level of function. I was like, I'm doing those moonsaults, and I need big-ass knee pads. And I don't like how they look on bare legs. And so I want big, baggy pants that I would wear anyways to cover these. And then, I, then from there, I realized I have to make up for the fact that I'm wearing big, baggy pants with some element of feminism. Like, <laughs> you know, looking feminine. So, like, and then here, here's my counter to that. And and it, and it just worked. What did Michael Hayes want you to wear? Got to wear a bikini, damn it! You're Diva. Yeah, something like that. I, and I know too. I remember uh, Jerry, the you know the King, came up to me afterwards. He's like, you know, you had a really great match. I liked it. It was early on. You know, right right after I, I don't even know if I was with Team Extreme or if it was you know this this transition period between mm-hmm. being with Poppy Chula and Team Extreme. It was a match with Jackie though. It was you know our first singles match, my first singles match on, on television. Like, you know, it was a really good match, but, but your underwear was sticking out the whole time. And I, was, <laughs> I was like, I know I, I did that. It matched my top, too. And he was like, Listen, oh. he's like, but he's still just like, I don't get it. Yeah. And he's just definitely one of those people like, he never got me. Like, doesn't mean he doesn't like, like me, but he just, he never got me. And that's, I'm like, I can appreciate that, though. 
Well, I think that's probably because he never got you because you had a look that was different from all the other divas. You know what I mean? That's why that's why it worked. I mean, I, I think that that your look and your style made you so unique amongst all the other girls that were around at that time. Well, for sure, you know, and I say like I grew up being a tomboy. I've always been. Gra- I have always gravitated to sports and interests and things that that guys like. Um, I never wore any makeup really at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I wrestled, so it just kind of wasn't my thing. And I don't even know really how to word this, but it's like, whatever. Like, I don't think I'm disgusting, but I was never like <laughs> a hot chick. You know what I mean? So, and like, that just wasn't my focus. And I mean, I wouldn't try to make a living being the hot chick because there's going to be a hotter bikini model or like somebody that is more classically like what people are drawn to. And, and so I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to make a living being the hot chick. I might make a living being the cool chick, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to make it being the hot chick. Yeah, but I think you kind of underestimate yourself. You, ha- you definitely had that appeal. And I think that's why, I mean, the teenage girls, guys, everybody was so behind, you know, Lita, even with Team Extreme or without, to the point where you got over so big that you were in the main event of Raw against Stephanie McMahon, Helmsley. And I think that still to this day, and you probably know better than I do, probably the only uh, female main event in Raw history. Is that true? Well, there's that. And then Trish and I were in the main event. And and the thing that I appreciate, too, about... So that one, too, is just Steph and I in the match, but we had props. Rocky was our special guest referee. Yeah. Kurt Angle did a run-in. The Hardy Boys did a run-in. I think Hunter even was down there for something. You know what I mean? So so we, we had props, but we were the, the main event. Um, when Trish and I went out there in the main event, I mean, which is the only time, it was just Trish and I. No props, no run-ins, no, no, no males other than the referee that was in the ring. Wow. I forgot about that one. So that one was just a, a pure one-on-one. So you've been in the main event of Raw twice. I think it, I mean, more, more yeah, a few times, uh, a few times, but as far as just, just women one-on-one. On, one on one, um. Yeah, I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, you know, it, it, and that's when you think about, I mean, the way that female wrestling is nowadays, I mean, it's kind of window dressing. It's in the background. It's almost there because it has to be, and, and you know, there's, there's, there's pros and cons for it, but when you guys were doing this, it was a, a heated legitimate money-making angle or else they wouldn't have put it in Raw. You know how Vince is. That main event of Raw is hallowed ground. I mean, how did that make you feel both with Stephanie and more importantly with Trish, like you said, when it was just the two of you? Did you realize how monumental that was? I did, but it was a really cool time because we were both pretty experienced at that time. Raw, or with Stephanie, it was more, it was great, but it was a little more novel. Like, wow, gimmick. cool. Yeah. You know, like, like, I don't know, just like excited. That, with Trish, it was more like, yeah, you're damn right we're in the main event. You know, like it was more like I had experienced a little bit more to, yes, know what it meant, know the value of that, but feel the responsibility, knowing we could live up to it, but feeling the responsibility of like, all right, when you're on that jet tonight, looking at those numbers, we're going to pull the numbers that you want, you Mm -hmm. know, and we're going to hit your times. And we're gonna, you know, we're, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna play with the big boys. We're gonna play your game and and like hold our own. And so that was a really, really um, like I could have quit the next day, kind of thing. <laughs> like, yep, just did that, hit all our times, and, and not by not by accident because that's how we we constructed our segment. 
Did, did you uh, ever find out what the numbers were? Were the numbers were the numbers steady, good, better, worse? They weren't like outstanding, but they were they were better than the week before, you know. And so they were, you know, it was we were up there, you know. And I'm sure that's that was great. The thing is, they were probably doing a thing where you know it comes near pay per view time, and you can't have these certain people touch, and they're around running running out of ideas. So we were there to spike to be something different, mm-hmm. and. We we were we were something different, and it held people's attention, and it held more people's attention than it did the week before. You know, so um, that was a, like a huge sense of accomplishment, and not so much. It's one of those I can't express it. I can express it to you, knowing what it means from an inside, you know, yeah. perspective. But and, and you know, and fans can understand what that means from a different way. But just of so many elements of going into of what it meant to do that. And, and I remember one thing specifically, you know, we've been working on the house shows around that time and we were, you know, spending a lot of time talking about different ways to go about doing this main event. And, you know, the kind of the day got away from us and we just threw on our house show gear, mm-hmm. which t- to us folk were like, nobody cares what we're wearing because that's not our role tonight. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. go out there and tell this story. And we're sitting in a locker room full of, girls be like, what do you think? The heels of the boots. What do you think? You know, like this or that. And, and us, you know, just kind of having knowing glances being like, right. Uh, either, either is fine. Really. <laughs> you know? what do you, how do you feel? Like, I mean, this might be a hard question to answer, but I mean, like we're, I mentioned earlier, you know, in this day and age, female wrestling is, is more about, you know, total divas than it is about actually getting in the ring and telling the story. Not, 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 by the girls' admission, but just by the way that the, the stories and shows are written. Why do you think that it's changed so much to where you guys can go and be the main event of, of Raw with a with a solid storyline, and now it's more about just like I said, total divas? Like, wh- where was the where was the change between two thousand and one and two thousand and fourteen, and why? Right. I mean, I think the one of the the main things is so you know, before I was at WWE, the women's title they'd done a little with it but it had become a, l- a little stagnant by the mm-hmm. time i got there which is you know how it and then it took back off when you know stephanie would just parade around with it intentionally to make you want someone to take it from her yes so she did her job in that i took it and ran with it but from there we really built built depth mm-hmm. and so trish and i had a great rivalry you know people always like seeing you know Jackie kicked somebody's ass, and then there was, you know, and then Victoria and Molly, mm-hmm. Ivory, you know, like, we kind of just had some depth with some different characters, and then once you lost, Trish and I within two months' time, mm-hmm. and then Victoria wasn't around for that much longer, you were left with just Mickey, maybe Melina was there for a little bit, you know, but it's like your depth is just kind of dropping off fairly mm-hmm. rapidly, and then you can't really build a division around one or two people, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you can have a, you can have a storyline of, you know, one or two people, but you just can't have overall interest in the women's title, you know, with just a couple people. And so I feel like the lack of, of depth in the, the characters has maybe, maybe made it go that way. I mean, in, in combination with, the characters maybe being somewhat inexperienced, so they are going to be shielded by being mainly valets for a time, which is the greatest way to learn, which is, you know, I mean, you kind of can't snap your fingers and have 
as deep a division as you had when we were leaving at the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, where all yeah. of these girls had either been on the indies, had worked for years before we got there, you know, and then right. everyone kind of reaching their time to, to retire or move to the next chapter right around that same time. Then you have a new crop of girls that, you know, have similar opportunities, but it's just a whole new playing field now, and they're having to learn along the way, which, you know, is a huge challenge, but the best way to learn them being thrown down there in the developmental territories as well as, you know, being behind a valet, which is, I mean, I did a lot of, you know, whether I was with Edge, whether I was with Kane or the Hardy Boys, but having to be out there with these guys that have been wrestling either in the main event constantly wrestling on the indies all this time. I'm listening to everything. I'm sitting there while they're talking about their segments. I'm, I'm thinking like a guy out there, yeah. you know, and, and there's, that's like sounds coming from a woman, especially, but it sounds very sexist to say, but there's just something about the intensity level, the thinking on the fly, the feeling things that, that the most of the women do not embrace. Yeah, and that, that makes that's a great point, though. I mean, it doesn't sound sexist because it's almost like a Japanese young boy where you're at, at ringside watching the matches up close and, and learning and listening and hearing. And also, very underrated, what you just said, being a part of the putting together the match process. I mean, that that's something that that's a, a, an art form, and to get a chance to sit around and listen to the guys put together the matches, especially some of the guys you mentioned, I mean, that's an invaluable experience as well. For sure. You know, and I mean, and fortunately, all of the men that I worked with were highly respectful of me, so always wanted me there. And, yeah. and you know, so, I mean, Edge and, and Sino, they, you know, would work forever, and the three of us were just, you know, like, that was our day. We'd hang out all day, and, you know, 80% of that were telling jokes, but <laughs> 20% of that, when I'm listening to that, I mean, there's just, there's no better way that that I can learn and, and then and then being on the house shows where you have more flexibility and John's just calling stuff on the fly just to be able to you know, for me, he's like, get in here and do this. Yeah. You know, and just to jump in there and to know what he means with three words but how to position it all and everything like that. It's just it's hard to learn that when you're all maybe new and you're all on the same level, you're kind of it's like mm-hmm. you know, but, but that's another thing blind really, you know. That's another thing too, like when you're a part of the act then you have to use that. I remember we did a Money in the Bank a, a few years ago when Ted DiBiase was with Maurice, and I don't know, he didn't want to be with her, just didn't like the idea of it, but during the, the, the match, I had a spot where everybody bumped out, and then Maurice came in and climbed the ladder and, and you know tried to get the case, and everyone was so like, what do you mean? Can we do this? I'm like, well, why wouldn't we? She's out here. Why not have her do something that's you know, makes sense. And sometimes people forget, you know, if it's Edge and Lita or the Hardy Boys and Lita, you are a part of the act. You have to get involved or else why the hell are you out there in the first place? Well, right, for sure. And, and you'll see that. And I watch that. I watch that all the time happen. I'm like, oh, that person doesn't like being paired with that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because that that's the only reason you wouldn't involve them because you have an extra built-in pop or an extra built-in reason to care about this segment right there. You know, yeah. uh, when that's not used, I, I do remember one time it was like a like a ten person main event, and I don't remember everybody that was in it, but I know that Hunter was in it, Austin was in it, Undertaker was in it, the Hardys were in it, Kurt Angle, you know, uh, all of our top stars. Maybe you were in it. I don't remember. All I remember is is a ten man tag, and they're chanting Lita, and all I'm thinking is. <laughs> I'm in so much trouble right now. <laughs> like, I didn't even pull a foot. And, and I was like, man, uh, yeah, I'm in trouble. And I was in trouble, and I was never out. You know, anytime that I was involved with the, those groups, I was just, 
you know, I was given some line about, well, you know, they figured that you'd be scared, your character would be scared to be out there, so you wouldn't be out there, so we're just going to leave you in the back tonight. And I'm like, this has to do with the time that we were in that two-segment match. Ah. <laughs> Which is so funny, right? Like, if you're getting chance, that's not a reason for you to get heat. That's a reason for the other guys to feel bad. You know, or feel feel like, wow, they're chanting for Lita. I better up my game and do something so they start chanting my name instead. Or at least they're distracted in a way be- while we're building the story because we're going to have them in a couple of minutes. Let them yeah. do this because they're, you know, they're excited and they want to yell something. And we can't start with the go-home spot. So while we're just messing around, if that's what they're wanting to yell about, then they can yell about it. They're not going to be doing it once we, once we have them. You know? Right, right, right. So, how, how I mean, we're talking about how over you were that you're getting chance, you know, in a match with the Undertaker and Austin, etc. How was it turning heel? Because when you turned heel, it was it was full on. I mean, you were you embraced that all the way, both you and Edge did. And there was some you guys got serious heat. It was how how did you feel about about that turning from babyface to heel? And in the circumstances with the you know the love triangle and all this other stuff that was going on, was that hard or was it something you just said, screw it, I'm going to go with it? Uh, yes to both. Yes, it was hard, but yes, it was like, screw it, I'm just going to go with this, because those were the cards I was dealt, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what the fans were already doing, there was no point in fighting it. And then, you can't, like, half-ass that, so you, right. you had to just go for it. And and that's part of what made it easier, because it was so far removed from how I am as a human being, mm-hmm. that that... You know, in, in the opposite case of miscongeniality, where I didn't quite get it because it was so far removed from me, I was like, "All right, this is so far removed from me. I'm playing a role." Whereas, like, babyface Lita, like the cool tomboy chick, what, like the, you know, just kind of fearless, like that. That was has a lot more of me elements in it. Right. This really didn't. So it was like, you know, step on and step out there and put your Halloween costume on, and then you're <laughs> the person for, for the evening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it, it was like, did you, did you? get any advice from Vince at all or anything like that? Were they, did anybody tell you, like, this is what we want you to do as a heel? Or how did, how did you kind of change your character? Uh, no, I mean, it was just kind of, we flipped, and I was like, I, maybe I should try to look a little bit different, so just to not identify, you know, with my old look and just kind of go for it. Fortunately, you know, having Adam to to bounce stuff off of, you know, mm-hmm. that was like, that was, we were our main sounding boards as far as what we wanted to do with the gimmick. And the office was very supportive of what we wanted to do with the gimmick and where we wanted to take it. They would, you know, they would take what we were comfortable with and up it, ramp it up by 10 times. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that was really great. You did this. Now we want you to, you know, go even further with it. But um, <laughs> yeah. at least we were kind of, we were building it together. Well, I mean, and you're talking about, I mean, you, you, we mentioned before about how you were in not just one Raw main event, but two. You were also in the famous live sex celebration on Raw that was got a huge rating. How did you feel when they, when they approached that, and w- what exactly was it that you were supposed to do? Um, I think it, it might still be the highest rated segment, of, like, from, I don't know if it's been beat yet, it was pretty ridiculously high rated, which is like the only thing that I can have some satisfaction in. Yeah. But uh, what did I do? I called all of my friends and my mom, and I was like, please do not watch tomorrow. Whatever you do, do not watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was just absolutely mortified. We both were. We both were kind of like, uh, okay, maybe what if we 
do a live tap dancing celebration. And they're like, nope, live sex celebration. We're like, okay, okay. What if we baked a cake? And then, you know, they're like, nope, live sex celebration. And we're like, okay, how do we, you know, and then I say, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, felt, I felt that. It was just so. Uh, but like just just seeing so you know, like I I have a, like a a story that kind of compares to where one time uh, Christian and I got our clothes stolen and we were running around for the rest of the show with just towels on and then we went out to the arena where Bubba had our bag with all our clothes in it and then Spike came and took our towels off and we were going to be naked and Vince literally said I want you to be naked and I'm like well what do you mean he, I'm, I want you to be naked you want us to be standing out there completely naked he goes well yes. That's what I want. So I know how crazy the boss can be. So did, like, it wouldn't surprise me if he told you guys, I want you to have sex. Like, what exactly did he tell you that he wanted you to do? <laughs> Live sex celebration, were you actually supposed to have sex? Or what was the, what was the, where was the line drawn? Right. Well, he, he wanted me naked. You know, he's like, no, well, you just, you'd be naked. And I'm like, um, what? Um, but, but I mean, are you sure? Well, yeah. <laughs> When you're having sex, you're naked. I'm just like, oh. oh. Um, so, yeah, I just, it was, re- like, ridiculous. But fortunately, again, like, working with Adam and John, John came in there and, like, gave me his move, which is now called something else. Oh, yeah, uh, the AA. It was called yeah. the FU, now it's the AA. Yeah, I was like, those weren't the letters that we used <laughs> to be called. But fortunately, we're, like, having spent 80% of our, like, the time of all of our days being around each other joking, that was like the only way to, to get through it. Yeah, uh, and we all we're, we all know we're we're doing it. And we're like, okay, we're just going to do this, and then we're just going to you know do like we do every night and get in our car and drive to the next town and get the, you know Taco Bell on the way. Like it's just life's going to proceed as normal after this. Yeah, um, it's kind of the the only way to get. So yeah, I mean, when Vince gets that idea in his mind, uh, you oh, got you're, you're done. Like unless you walk out of the building, you're done. Like, That's right. And that, that goes whether it's, I want you to lose to so-and-so, I want you to be naked on the stage, I want you to have a live sex, whatever it is, you got to make the best of it. And um, I mean, once again, it fit your characters and, and it got you heat and a huge rating, which I'm sure Vince uh, patted himself on the back a hundred times for being a genius. But uh, what led to you finally deciding that, that you'd had enough and that it was time for you to, to hang up the boots, so to speak? Well... My contract was coming up. They approached me about resigning, and I and I asked Johnny. I said, "Just give me some house shows off for a while because I'm not sure I want to do this anymore, and I don't, I'm not going to spend time negotiating with you if for my ego, just to see what I can get you to offer me. Yeah. You know, like if I don't want to do it, and then I and then you give me what I ask for, and then I say no, never mind. Right. I don't want that. You know? So I just took some time, and I just. I just decided I'd, I'd move back to Atlanta. I was living in more of like an urban environment. I had friends that didn't watch wrestling. Uh, I just kind of had more of a, a life at that point. Uh-huh. Uh, I lived a little bit, was living a little bit more outside of the bubble than I had the past seven years. And I was like, you know, I think it's just time for whatever's next. And I feel as though I've crossed off every major accomplishment that I could in my career. And I could keep repeating those accomplishments. And I know what I'm doing. And my job at this point in the in the grand scheme of things, is relatively easy, you know. Besides getting beat up for a living and driving on two hours of sleep and getting yeah. up for media days, like it, it, it still was like easy as far as like I knew how to manage it, you know. And it, you know, I was making a great living doing it, but I did not get in. Like I didn't call the travel agent in Mexico <laughs> for a paycheck, right? 
you know, I, I called for an adventure, and I had an adventure, and I, you know, went as far as I thought I could go. So I was like, I'd rather fall on my face and see what the next chapter holds and not miss another friend's wedding or baby or all these, mm-hmm. these things that all my friends were doing that I was like, hey, texting, congratulations, thumbs up, you know, like yeah. instead of being there for them. Um, I just wanted to kind of, yeah, be set free. It's amazing. You know, I talk about this all the time with guys who, you know, are in the business on this show, how much traveling it is and how hard it is to be going in and out of airports. And like you said, two hours sleep and then security check here and drop the rental car off here. And you just get used to it when you're when you're working every, you know, every week, every day, whatever it is. And when you step away, you realize just, oh, my gosh, like, how the hell did I did I do that? You know, it's so hard. Yeah, I had that after I came home. I slept for what felt like five days, and I was taking my dog for a walk, and I was just, I had that exact moment. I was Mm -hmm. like, how did I do that? That was so crazy. Like, it was just by myself, and I had nobody to talk to, but it was just like this, yeah, kind of unfathomable how I managed all all (laughs) the time, how I traveled, you know, for three weeks with airplane on airplanes and rental cars with a broken neck and how I, Ugh. you know, was flown from uh, Puerto Rico to the, the next town because and then we'd find a doctor when we got to that town to figure out why I couldn't put any pressure on my knee that everything in it was torn and why, you know, and, yeah. you know that's on, and those are extenuating circumstances, extreme, not um, media days in Detroit from after having, you know, <laughs> yeah. from Chicago and what, you know, yeah. so... And that's the other side of the coin, but I mean, so 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 you, you walked away, and it was pretty uh, pretty admirable that you actually walked away and didn't come back. And uh, but you've always been into music. I know you you started out as a musician, uh, then you started the Lucha Gores. How was that experience for you? And do you guys still play? Do you still gig? No, we haven't. I've been in you know, the same thing basically. At the end end of that, I was like, okay, I wanted to see what that was like, oh. and I did. <laughs> so so there's that. But I yeah, I played in bands. And I was into martial arts before I was into wrestling. And then that's when I when I attached myself to wrestling. I was like, man, it's like being a martial artist and a rock star in one gig. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. so that's how I transitioned. But I'd only played kind of with people's project bands and had never really delved into one full band. So I wanted to I wanted to do that. I just wanted to see see what it was like. And we ended up doing three European tours and three US tours and the, the last one we did was, like, right after the crash of, like, the economic crash in 08, October of 08, or whatever that mm-hmm, was. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we ended up losing some money on that, and I was I was paying for everything. And my, my thing was always, like, as long as it just kind of pays for itself, you right. know, besides, I, I'm fine with that, because this is for experience. I'm not, you know, thinking this is my next meal ticket or, or whatever. And then after, you know, we'd done it, and we were doing, we were just kind of hovering around, doing the, going to the same clubs, doing the same things. I was like, okay, I already saw what the bar fly looks like in Cardiff three times. So. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, that's cool that you got a chance to go over to Europe three times. I mean, that's a, it's a different vibe when you're touring with the band than it is when you're touring with the WWE. Oh, absolutely. People would always say, what do you like better, Luchagors or your career at the WWE? I was like, I'm so apples to oranges. You yeah. Know? And, and even one thing that was huge was you know, we'd always we'd have band meetings and granted I, I tried to very much run my band like I was 25% not um, 80% yeah <laughs> right <laughs> whatever <laughs> but um, so our conversations would always be 
so it would start out so for the good of the pirate ship, and then we'd present our options because it was what needs to happen to make this outfit move further. It has nothing to do with um, you know this girl that you want to hang out with after the show in right. Edinburgh, or this stuff has nothing to do with you know me wanting to sleep not on somebody's cat piss floor. This has to do with like what's going to be best for, for the band. Right. So that was really nice to know that we all have the exact same interests as opposed to if we're at an angle, my paycheck still comes to my house and your paycheck comes to your house. So we're still in a conflicted interests while having similar interests thing, which kind of just makes you walk that shark tank mentality your entire career. So to be able to step away from that and go, so what should we do, guys? Like, you have no motivation other than to tell me what you think is best because we all have the same goal, and that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a step, too. I'm sure, I mean, we went through this when we first started Fozzie. You know, people think at first, okay, well, this is just Lita's thing, and we'll just go watch Lita pretend to be a musician. And then when you actually, people go and see that the band kicks ass, that's when you start to turn the corner. And that's another cool thing. I know for us, like the fact that our band is now, you know, gotten to a certain point and, and continues to grow as because of the music, not because of who's in the band. That's a, a pretty cool feeling as well. Did you ever, uh, did you, did you ever feel that resistance at first that it's like, oh, it's just Lita and her, her fun time thing? Yeah. The majority of the people asked, that's what I felt. The, the best time I had on tour, we did a week with a band called uh, The Unseen and they're on Hellcat Records, which is, you know, I liked other bands on that, that label. I was friends with the guys in the band. They asked us to go on tour with them for a week, and it was kind of last minute. They already had, we played a show with them. They're like, oh, you should come on tour with us. And so we just kind of did last minute. Mm-hmm. And so because it was last minute, there was zero advertising. I mean, we did our own, but I'm saying like on all of the flyers, all of the clubs, there was not, our name wasn't even on anything. And to have, you know, people that grew up listening to the music that I grew up to go, Wait, wait, what is the name of your band? That was amazing. And like, where can I buy everything? And, and like, this is great. No concept of my past, no concept of anything. So that week was the best week of being in the band. And that doesn't discount all of the, you know, other great things that happen along the way. But for a week of being completely unknown and just like kicking the door cold and then people responding to it was was the most satisfying week. It was, was huge, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you've you've done you've had such a cool life. You've done everything that you've wanted to do. What's next for you now? What's next? I feel so. I, when I was just down in Nicaragua for the past two months, it's really wild west. But it because it's so undeveloped, the roads aren't even paved in a lot of the places. It just feels like anything's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do anything. You just need someone to organize and do it. And there's so much less bureaucracy there. And you just kind of come up with an idea and, and make it happen. And so I was brainstorming on so many things while I was down there, and it just made me feel like anything's possible. I've got a lot of different like irons in the fire that I'd like to do, but I feel like ultimately it will have to do with like vegan lifestyle and health and fitness. But the main thing is like misconceptions of, of veganism and and of, of it being expensive, first of all, and where do I get my protein? And number two, of <laughs> fitness of people... It, like being too expensive to work out. So as far as people's fitness with having zero expense involved and a vegan lifestyle being healthier and less expensive than what you're, what you're already doing, you know, so like right. those are area that I would love to be able to focus on. Well, uh, last question, your favorite match of all time, gun to head. Oh man. It's a tough one. It is a tough one. It's hard. 
when people am I ask in that. Am I not in it? Am I in no, you're in it. You're the favorite match that you ever had, or one of them. Okay, because I was going to go Sean and Brett double babyface, but I was okay. Well, we'll all right. So, on. so your favorite match that you ever watched was the 60 minute mar- uh, marathon match at WrestleMania. And how about for you, the match that you were for, in? For me, um, I mean, I think I would. Gosh, so hard, um, isn't it? Yeah, because they're just. I mean, some are really like seriously hard. Some are like that was really fun. You know, and some are like, I feel really accomplished. Well, um, what's the first one that came to your mind? There's like a little smattering. The, the one that was really fun that comes to mind is uh, Rocky and me were tag team partners against Trish and Triple H. And uh, that was the first time we were in the main event. And we, you know, and, and we were like goofy kids, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and should have been treated as such. You know, we were probably given <laughs> way more respect than we deserved at that time, just in the level of professionalism with everybody involved. But, um, so that was super fun. And Anne was like, you know, as we're fighting, like, holy shit, we're in the match, you know, with, with Rocky and, and Hunter and very early on in the career. And then I think very much later on in the career, in my career, would be the, the main event with Trish yeah. for the title. Uh, just Just from a, all, all facets standpoint mm-hmm. from, um, you know, everything from the actual ring work to what went on behind the scenes, how our, how our brains just function well together at that time. I, I would say that match. Yeah. And deservedly. So, well, congratulations on the WWE hall of fame. You deserve it. You've had a great career. You've had a very cool life and April 5th, you get to stand up there and, and, and have everybody cheer for you and tell you how great you are. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm kind of, I'm looking to embrace that, I, uh, especially being removed from wrestling. I don't, um, don't like attention really focused on me, but I was always, Michael Hayes, I remember there was stuff going on with China and Sable, and he was like, hey, don't let this go to your head. You know, you, you, we can replace you just like that. I'm <laughs> like, okay, I'm, I'm not, like, but geez, like, so it was even hard for me at the time going through it was somebody was like, hey, good match for me to go. It was. Thank you. I'd be like, yeah, but, you know, I mean, the ref really was good on our time cues, and, and, you know, the person that I was working with, our agent really helped. Like, I just felt like I always had to be like, don't worry, don't worry. I know it's not just me. Yeah. So, for that night, at that moment, it's just me, and I'm excited to kind of own it. Well, so all your fans, and it's great to reconnect with you, Amy. I'm glad we were able to, to hook up for this, and congratulations to you. Thank you very much. All right, we'll talk to you soon. All right, take care. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. It's time to hit the phone lines. Did you catch the number on the Twitter? At Talk is Jericho. If you didn't, you got to pay attention, people. This is your chance. We want to talk about Malaysia Airlines flight number 370. Been missing since March 8th. What happened, in your opinion? We got Christian from Los Angeles. What happened to the, to the Malaysian flights? Hi Chris, uh, thank you for having me on the show today. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. This is uh, this is unbelievable. No, I, I appreciate that. I'm it. I, I, thank you for calling. What do you, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts, I, I would go paranormal, um, but logically, I would go that that it did go down in the ocean. 
but going back to the the paranormal aspect of it, I I do believe you know. Well, quickly, just you mentioned the logical thing. I agree, but the thing is, this is this whole thing is completely illogical. So to me, any theory is viable right now. So continue. Well, I mean, with with paranormal, I mean, there's always the the fact of aliens out there. I mean, the, the, this plane could have been abducted. Uh, with the with the whole thing with the Bermuda Triangle, there have been so many planes that have gone missing. Right. Uh, in that area. Um, so that that's probably the, the paranormal aspect of it. Um, so are you, are you thinking like you know it's funny because we haven't heard anything about the Bermuda Triangle in years, at least as far as I know. If if you're thinking aliens, you're thinking that the aliens like just kind of zapped the plane up and, and and took it and abducted the whole plane, or what do you think? What kind yeah, of? Yeah, alien? I mean, to be honest, I mean that that would probably be it. Uh, you know, being zapped. Okay. All right. Well, that's. Uh, that's one for the paranormal side of things. Thanks for listening, Christian. I appreciate your uh, your uh, your thoughts today. Thank you. Have a great day, Chris. All right, man. Now we got Gail in West Palm Beach, Florida on the line. What do you think happened to the missing Malaysian Airlines Flight 370? Um, well, my coworker just brought up the fact um, that don't smartphones have GPS on them now? And if they were able to call the phones, couldn't they track maybe where the phones were located. Well, yeah, and that's what we're saying. The fact that the phones rang for a couple of days after the planes disappeared, and most of them do have GPS, just as the plane has a transponder and a whole communication system, why haven't they been able to find any information on any of these things? Uh, it sounds, well, I don't want to say the government's covering it up, but somebody's definitely covering it up. There's something going on that we don't know that we haven't been told. Exactly. And they probably know what it is, but they're not sharing it, which is really sad for the families who are worried about, you know, their loved ones on there. Yeah, you're trying to get the closure. Because they're also saying, too, that another reason why the phones might have rang is because sometimes satellite connections, instead of giving you busy signals or just going straight to voice, voicemail, will ring uh, as, you know, as the phone is, is, is they're trying to find the signals. But even that seems a little bit convenient. I agree. It's it's definitely very strange, and hopefully they will be able to find something out very soon for the families. I mean, we agree. Well, th- thank you for call uh, for calling in, and thank you for giving us your thoughts. And hopefully, we will find something very soon. Uh, let's go over to Paul calling all the way from across the pond, Oxford, England. Hello, Paul. How's it going, Chris? You right? Doing great. Let me just say that you are the official first uh, overseas caller we've ever had on Talk Is Jericho. Is that right, Nick? I think so. Yeah. So, Paul, what oh, are your what are your theories? What are your theories and thoughts on the missing Malaysian flight three seventy? Well, um, there's a lot of theories, isn't there, out there? I mean, we've got the um, the BBC News that's running like its top story in the UK. Yeah. And um, the big thing was obviously about the phone ringing, but that could be a red herring. It could be anything. You know, just because a phone rings doesn't mean it's you know in a hangar being held up. Right. But I agree with I agree with your old point actually that um, if it was terrorism surely they would have come out by now yeah that seems to be the thing right if 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 they you know terrorists do these sort of things to get credit for them and the fact that they haven't taken credit and nobody has stood up for it tells me that that probably isn't isn't the case no uh, i mean if it was they're kind of playing a long haul game aren't they really it's a bit like well we'll just nip this plane we'll leave it a couple of days and then, oh, actually, by the way, it was us. Uh, got you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then, that, you know, the, 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 the more we think about it, the more it seems that maybe it is, you know, in the ocean somewhere. But even that is very peculiar in the fact that they haven't seen any evidence of it. 
Yeah, yeah well, the, the strangest thing is that um, there's a lot of things about, like, I don't know if you've got it over there, but here they're saying that they're having to release more sensitive information because they were keeping some stuff back. But they said to help the search, they've had to release more sensitive information. But they must have a, loads more than they're letting on, surely. Well, yeah, are you saying that they're about to release more sensitive information? Yeah. Wow, I mean, according, yeah. According to BBC News here, they ha- they're having to release more sensitive information to help wow. the Navy and stuff and whoever else is helping to find it. The well, stuff apparently haven't let the media know that they have to let it out. Yeah, well, even just for the for the sake of the families that are waiting to find out what happened to their loved ones. So, yeah, it's well, a very... Look at, look at the, the families are saying, there's a couple of people saying, we're going on hunger strike. Because we're not having it, you know. Right until you know. Well, it's it, it, it does have the potential to get a lot worse from that from that uh, you know from that mindset. And like you said, if there is information they haven't released it, it's time to release it now because it's been you know two th- three weeks almost since it happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, at the end of the day, if it, it you know, God bless them if they if they are in the ocean, it's a travesty. And you know, a big a really good point my friend made to me at university is um. They still haven't found half the Titanic. Well, you're right. And it took them like two years to find the Air France flight. So uh, thank you very much for your call, Paul. It's great to know that we have listeners across the the pond that are as into this as we are. Uh, And let's take one more theory of what happened to Malaysian Flight 370. Tiffany in Alberta is calling. What do you think is going on, Tiffany? I think that big planes like that don't just disappear. Somebody knows something, and they ain't going to tell us. Do you think it's a, some kind of a terrorist hijacking? Mm, I would I would go with yes. And you think that the, the, the only thing is we were talking about is the terrorists haven't announced it yet, and usually they like taking credit for, uh, you know, when they, when they like hijack or, or cause some kind of an issue, they like to take credit for it, but they haven't done that yet. That is very true, but like I said, big planes like that don't go missing, and they don't just not tell us something unless they want us to know, and they're not telling us nothing. So you think it's some kind of a government cover-up then? It very well could be. Well, absolutely. Well, I thank you for for your thoughts, Tiffany. And like I said, none of us really know what happened, and we're all going to wait and see uh, what went down. And when we find out, you know that those of us here at Talk is Jericho, a.k.a. me, We'll let you know all the information. Thanks for calling in, though. It's a very interesting discussion. I think I'm going to do more of these. And and our thoughts and prayers go out to the missing uh, 239 people on Malaysian Flight 370. And hopefully we find out exactly what happened to them soon. Thank you for calling me and giving me your opinions. And also thank you for linking to Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page at podcast1.com. Every time you do your shopping that way, Amazon kicks back a couple bucks to the show so I can keep bringing you the pot of thunder twice a week for free and give you such riveting theories and conversations as we had today on the phones, as we had today with Amy Duma, a.k.a. Lita. It's been an amazing, amazing uh, hour and change with you. We will see you on Friday. If you like this show, hit the download button. In fact, if you liked it even more, tell your friends to check out the show and tell them to t- t- tell a couple friends. And they can tell their grandmas and you can tell your little sister. Get the whole family gathered around the computer screen just like the old days with a Motorola radio. 
You can even hit that subscribe button at iTunes so you never miss an episode. It'll go directly to your device and you can hang out with me twice a week. I will be back on Friday to talk to horror movie director Eli Roth, also an amazing actor. And wow, does he have some crazy stories to tell, including how he traveled up the Amazon River and found a tribe and filmed a movie with them. And they had never seen a TV screen before ever in their lives. Eli Roth, one of my favorite people, will be on Friday. We'll see you then. Peace, love, hugs. God bless you all. You're the greatest. Stay hard, stay heavy, stay hungry. We'll see you on Friday. Yeah, boy. Watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere with Hulu Plus on your TV or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. Shows like Family Guy. I love that one. Once Upon a Time, New Girl, and so many more. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus for free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com slash Jericho. That's HuluPlus.com slash Jericho.